All right, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 11. We'll be covering verses 45 through 57 this morning. Uh, on Wednesday evenings, as some of you know, I've been teaching a class called Making Peace, a biblical guide to resolving conflict. And it's been so personally encouraging for me, uh, just as I see the thoughtfulness and just how insightful uh, the, the class is and the, the dialogue that we have. And, and usually after each class, there are a number of questions that are asked of me, either in person or by email or whatever. And I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, um, in response to a comment that I had made, actually I had quoted a, a secular psych, uh, sociologist, someone said to me, I mean, is it really helpful or is it wise for us to read uh, non-Christian authors? You know, those who want nothing to do with the Lord, those who don't profess uh, Christ as Savior. And my answer was, there's actually great value in reading, quote, secular authors, if we do that uh, discerningly. You know, we want to test everything that they say, anyone says against the Scripture, and always submit to what the Scriptures say. Um, but there's much that we can learn from non-Christian writers, artists, philosophers, historians, sociologists, and so on, if, as it's been said over the last several hundred years, all truth is God's truth. If all truth is God's truth, which I believe is, is a right statement, then what is valuable, true, and noble is from the Lord, regardless of whose lips it comes from. In fact, as reformers uh, concluded, I think so well, therefore in reading profane authors, and by that uh, it doesn't mean uh, illicit or wicked or evil, it just means those who don't know the Lord, the admirable light of truth displayed in them should remind us that the human mind, however much fallen and perverted from its original integrity, is still adorned with admirable gifts from its creator. If we reflect that the Spirit of God is the only foundation of truth, we will be careful, as we would avoid offering insult to Him, not to reject or condemn truth wherever it appears. So the point being that truth is sometimes found in the most surprising of places. Uh, sometimes, in fact, we'll hear someone who is profane, someone who is godless, someone who wants nothing to do with the Lord or the things of the Lord, actually say something that is incredibly profound. You ever been talking with someone and they've made it very clear they're not a Christian, but they say something and you're like, that's actually really insightful. That's very insightful. Sometimes some of the most profound, stunning, and even beautiful declarations of truth come from the most unexpected sources. And that's what we're going to see this morning. After Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the whole region is sort of sent into this stir. Uh, the whole region, again, is in an uproar. The high priest of the Jewish count, ruling council, Caiaphas, a man who actually hated Jesus, who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, at least in a good way, he makes one of the most important and insightful statements of the Bible. This is a guy who was not a, a fan of Jesus at all. So let's look at the text together. John chapter 11. Uh, let me start by reading verses 45 through 48. The word of the Lord reads this way. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. How many times have we seen that phrase? But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do with them? Or what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now we'll get to Caiaphas and his statement in just a moment, but first I want to consider what happened as a result of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This is so important. John tells us that many of the Jews who had seen what Jesus did believed in him. In fact, this was actually the whole point of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, to demonstrate in a supernatural way, to provide a picture of the gracious nature and the power of God in salvation so that so that many would believe on him. Jesus makes it clear throughout the story of Lazarus' resurrection. We looked at that last week when he explains to Mary and Martha why he wasn't there when, his, when their brother died. Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there, verse 15, so that you may believe. And then later on in the story, when Jesus is praying to the Father and people are crowding all around him, he says, Father, I know that you always hear me, but I'm saying these things, verse 42, so that they may believe. And then if we zoom out and we look at the whole book of John, this book by Jesus' closest friend and follower, the reason that John recorded the events of Jesus' life, John says, all these things were written, verse 31 of chapter 20, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, of course, Jesus missed his friend Lazarus. And of course, he was he was sad, he was grieving that his friend had died, but, but he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So it couldn't have been, his tears couldn't have been just because Lazarus was dead. And we saw last week that what grieved Jesus so deeply was the effects of sin on the world. That death and sickness and sorrow and hatred and all these things had invaded the world because of the sin of our first parents. And so, yes, Jesus missed his friend Lazarus. But Jesus raised him from the dead so that many, we're told, would believe on him. When faith in Jesus occurs, an event in the gospel has reached its goal. Faith in Jesus that leads to worship of the true living God. So Jesus' goal then and today is that many would believe on him and cling to him for life, hope, and forgiveness. Here's our first point, just two points this morning. Jesus single greatest desire throughout his earthly ministry and continuing today is for the lost, tired, and wandering to believe in him. Jesus' preeminent desire for all peoples of the earth is that they would, be rec- they would, they would believe in him and consequently be reconciled to the God who made them and they would then worship, glorify, and enjoy this God forever. You know, Jesus' single greatest desire is not that you change your behavior, although that will happen to those who believe. But that's not Jesus' single greatest desire. Jesus' single greatest desire is not that you join a church, although that's critically important. But it's not Jesus' first concern. Now, I say that because I talk to people all the time. And if the Lord provides an opportunity and I casually ask them about when they came to faith in Christ, which is something I want to know, the people that I'm shepherding, that God's uh, given uh, me to watch over and to pray for as a group of elders. So if I'm sitting with someone and I ask them when they came to faith in Christ, I can tell you the answer that I get more often than not is they tell me when they started attending a certain church. It happens all the time, all the time. 
I say, tell me about when God brought you to a place of brokenness and he, and, he, and he enabled you to understand your own sinfulness and his holiness and he brought you to faith. They say, well, I've been a part of this church for whatever. I say, but that's, but that's not what I'm asking you. Tell me about when you, you came to faith in Jesus. Oh, we started back when we were whatever age at this church. Going to church is not believing. You can go to church and not believe. Jesus' single greatest desire is not that you go to church. Jesus' single greatest desire is not that you give your money. Although those who recognize all they have been given are in fact eager to give. Jesus' single greatest desire is that we believe. This is the predominant message in John's gospel. In John's gospel, the command to believe appears more often than in any other book of the Bible. Some 90 times roughly, this word believe appears. In fact, incredibly... John's gospel contains almost one-third of all the biblical occurrences of the word believe, this command to believe. Okay, but what exactly are we called to believe? Well, what we've learned from John's gospel so far is we're called to believe on Jesus, the Son of God, sent from the Father. Jesus says this repeatedly in John's gospel, that you believe on the one who was sent. We're called to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. This is a similar concept, but this actually includes uh, sort of Jesus' redemptive work. We're called to believe that, that Jesus is the one who was predicted in the Garden of Eden, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. He is the one who would come and restore all things and make all things right. He is that Redeemer. We're also called to believe John 1 in the name of Jesus, that He is I Am, the very God of the Bible the God of the universe, the God who was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. We're called to believe, we saw last week, that He is the resurrection and the life. There is no life apart from Him, at least spiritual life. There is no eternal life apart from Him. He grants new life to those who believe. We're called to believe that. We're also instructed to believe that His death was not just a cosmic victory. Again, this is going back to the redemption that He promises not just a cosmic victory, but it was in fact a victory for us as the ones who put Him on the cross because of our sin and our rebellion. We're not called, just to be, called to believe just in a sort of generic Savior who would save the world, but a personal Savior who came and died for me because of the sin that I committed. Called to believe in a, in a personal Savior. I want to make sure that as I say this, I'm not giving you a checklist so you can say, sort of, yeah, okay, I believe that, I'm good, I believe that, I'm good, yep, I believe that. Believing is not simply intellectually accepting a list of theological dogma or premises, doctrinal premises. Believing is a dynamic act of the whole person. It's a dynamic act of the whole person. There's a difference between believing that Something happened, that someone was a certain way, and believing in. A couple of years ago, one of my sons and I took a driving trip to Upper Michigan, and we were connecting with one of my very close friends and his son. And so the four of us, we went, and my, my friend owned, uh, owned this cabin way, way up in uh, Upper Michigan, and it was in the most remote place. I mean, it was legitimately, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And so we drive out there, there's no restaurants around, no gas stations, I mean, nothing. I mean, we drove for probably an hour and a half without seeing anything. And, but I trusted my friend, and I knew that he would provide all we needed. So we go to this little tiny cabin, and um, it, was, it was amazing. We, we 
cooked our food over an open flame, over open fire. We hiked all day, kayaked. And there was one day where he said, hey, I want to I show you this place. Now, it's a, it's a little bit of a trek, but I want to show you this place where there's a, a rope, a rope swing that you can get on. You can actually swing out over this cliff of rocks and into a river. So I thought, okay, so we, I mean, it sounded exciting, fun, scary, all those things. So we did this. We made our way to the, the swing. And my, my friend's son, who's actually now training to be a Navy SEAL, he gets on the rope and he's doing all these stunts and these positions and whatever. So his, his son went and then my son went and then he went. And then I went. I was the last person to go. And there was a knot at the end of the rope uh, to, you know, kind of put your, to rest your feet on. And literally between the, the edge of the cliff and the water, there were about 15 feet of huge boulders. I mean, huge rocks. So I got on the rope, put my feet on the, on the knot, and I got going, and I took a swing. I went out as far as I could over the, over the uh, rocks, over the, into the, over the water. And then when I, when, I had, uh, when I swung back over the land, the rope snapped, and I landed on my back, on, on the grass, thankfully. But I thought at that moment, like, if that would have happened when I was over those rocks, I would have died. I would have been dead. And so I uh, took out my anger at my friend for a minute, and then we just we, we continued to hike. But I thought, this, is, this was unbelievable stuff. Now, this reminded me of what C.S. Lewis says about believing in his book, A Grief Observed. After losing his wife, Joy, Lewis, uh, was, as you know, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, among other classic works, he was... Of course, devastated. Lost his wife. Um, he entered a very dark period, and much of it was actually what he would later refer to as a spiritual depression. Um, and in the book, this book, A Grief Observed, Lewis details the anger and the confusion that he felt toward God after his wife's death. In fact, he was so candid and so honest and open in this book that he originally wrote it under a pseudonym, a different name, N.W. Clerk was the name that he used. It wasn't until after he died that uh, his name was associated with He didn't want people to know he was the author because in the book he documented his struggles with God and he came to a point where he had to ask the question, grieving over the loss of his beloved wife, he had to ask the question, do I really believe? Do I believe God? Do I believe in His Son? Do I believe in eternal life? Now here's why my experience at the cliff reminded me of C.S. Lewis's book. He writes in A Grief Observed. He says, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. It's easy to say you believe, in, uh, believe a rope to be strong as long as you're merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? Now, what he's saying is, believing in anything, especially Jesus, is not simply knowing certain things. It's not simply recognizing certain facts. Believing, especially believing in Jesus, means committing to Jesus at the level of the whole person. It means resting the fact that he's actually our only hope. We have no hope for eternity apart from this Jesus. It means recognizing he's, he's actually our only righteousness. We have nothing by which we can go to God and say, I'm good enough. He's our only righteousness. Believing means committing it to the whole person. He is our only strength. He is our only peace. Because he is who he said he was. 
And by God's grace, John says, and he said this a couple of times, that when Jesus does something, he performs a miracle. Here, it was the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. We're told yet again, many believed in his name. But not everyone believed. Look at verses 48 through 57. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only... For the na- not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know that they might arrest him. So many people believed in Jesus, but not everyone. In fact, there were some who decided to tattle on Jesus. There were some who were, they were trying to get in with the religious leaders. They were trying to kind of make a name for themselves. And they went and told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. Now, I don't know what their beef could have been. In other words, I don't know what they were going to say, what negative thing they were saying. He had actually raised someone from the dead. So I don't know how they kind of positioned this. Maybe they said, well, we don't know. Is he trained for this sort of ministry? Or, uh, you know, did he check with a church office or... Uh, does, did he have a permit for this? I don't know what they actually said that was negative, but they went and they, they sort of tattled at him. And they said, do you, you know what's going on here? And they, they tell the Pharisees, and what are the Pharisees? They say, well, what are we going to do about this man? If we let him go on like this, performing these miracles, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And this is pretty incredible, really. The Pharisees, they don't, they don't deny, they don't try to discount what Jesus has done. They, they receive, they believe it, apparently. But they don't believe in Him. Rather than submit to Him, their, angle, their anger, rather, is kindled. But here's the thing, they didn't have the power to do anything to Jesus on their own, even to arrest Him without the religious council signing off on this. In order for a person to be tried for blasphemy, the highest judicial body of the land had to sign off, and that was the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men made up of Pharisees, Sadducees. The, the chief priests were largely the Sadducees. The Pharisees were a bit of a minority, but they were part of that group. And this group controlled, the Sanhedrin controlled all of the Jewish affairs, internal affairs, under the oversight of the Roman authority. Uh, the chief priests, again, they were, they were part of the, the, the Sanhedrin, but the highest ranking officer was the high priest. Now, it must be pointed out that the Pharisees and Sadducees could barely stand each other. They were enemies. They were bitter opponents. They weren't friends. They were part of the same uh, Jewish ruling council, but they saw things very differently. They, they had very different beliefs as it related to God 
his sovereignty as related to everlasting life and so on. They really hated each other, but there was one thing that they, that they agreed on, one thing that united them, and that was their disgust for Jesus, their disdain for Jesus. So they come together, they unite, they present their case to the high priest who not only made sacrifices, but also ruled the Sanhedrin, the governing council. And the high priest at that time was a guy by the name of Joseph Caiaphas. Joseph Caiaphas was a highly opinionated, slightly paranoid leader who was puffed up with pride. And when the religious leaders come to him and present their case, he says, you don't know anything. Now, as pastors, we help counsel people on how to communicate biblically, even as we ourselves continue to grow in our own communication. And we say there are certain, there are certain words and there are certain phrases that, that you probably shouldn't say because they incite uh, anger. There are certain things that help to kind of diffuse things. And there are certain phrases that maybe you only use in certain contexts. But here's a phrase that's never helpful in any context. You don't know anything, he says. You don't know anything. What he says essentially is, you guys are all idiots. You don't see anything. And then he makes this incredible statement, not even realizing fully what he's saying. He says in verse 50, he says, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now Caiaphas thinks he's being political, and and certainly he is on some level. But he's also unwittingly being theological. What he's trying to say is, politically speaking, it's better for one man to die than for a whole nation to come to ruin. See, at this point, you have the Jewish nation, again, under the, the, the tyranny of Rome. And they're not to cause too much stir. Or if they do, the Roman government will outlaw their religion. And Jesus is, beginning, is becoming very, very popular. More and more people are believing on him. And people are saying about Jesus, they're saying Jesus is Lord. Well, this was actually against the law. Because Caesar was the one to be proclaimed as Lord. And so what Caiaphas is saying here is if more people start following this Jesus and more people start proclaiming him as Lord, then the Roman government is actually going to shut down our religion, which will in fact ruin our nation. The more that this word about Jesus gets out and the more that his following grows, there will be a response from the empire, and it won't be good. Caiaphas says, essentially, if Jesus continues what he's doing, the whole nation will suffer. But if Jesus suffers, then the whole nation will be spared. If Jesus is put to death, he says, then a whole group of people will be saved. What Caiaphas actually points to, again, John tells us he doesn't really know what he's saying fully. What he points to is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. One person dying in the place of many. Now, he should have known this, because this concept went all the way back, of course, to the Old Testament. and He would have been well-schooled in the whole sacrificial system, where a spotless lamb was slain to cover the sins of a nation. But Caiaphas wasn't thinking about that. He was thinking politically. And John says in verse 51, when John says that Caiaphas didn't say this on his own accord, it wasn't as though God just sort of took over his body and used his mouth as a puppet. What he's saying is that even though Caiaphas was saying exactly what he wanted to say, God was saying something deeper. And what God was communicating was really the essence of the Christian faith. 
Because God is holy and He cannot stand sin, He cannot wink at sin, He must punish it fully. Everyone who has sinned against Him is deserving of death. His wrath fairly rests on all those who have disobeyed. Well, we have disobeyed. And so has every person that's ever lived, which means that we, along with every other person, we deserve death. The wages of sin is death, the Apostle Paul writes. You and I deserve death. You and I deserve wrath. But God, being rich in mercy and abounding in in love and faithfulness, determined instead to send His Son to suffer and die for the sins that we committed, knowing that His Son's obedience in this way would actually result in His Son's glory. God gave up His own Son as a ransom for us to die in our place, the Holy One for the lawless, the Innocent One for the guilty, the Righteous One for the unrighteous, the Immortal One for the mortal, so that we could be totally and completely forgiven. He takes away our sins and covers us with Christ's righteousness. The one who died would in fact bring all God's people together. Rod Rosenblatt, a professor and pastor in Irvine, California, says this, the language of Christianity is the language of substitution. It's not primarily the language of morals. God is not presented as a mother saying, eat all your vegetables. Instead, Christianity is about a one-sided rescue that we didn't want and certainly didn't deserve, but He did it anyway. My kids hear this all the time, and I know they get tired of it, but Whenever we're anywhere, in fact, this just happened with one of my daughters the other day. We're having lunch together. Whenever we're talking and they say anything about heaven or uh, eternal life or the future or anything like that, I always take an opportunity to say, they say, yeah, you know, my daughter had said, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm looking forward to heaven. I said, and and I always take this opportunity. I said, well, um, you know, on what basis do you think you're going to get in? In other words, why do you think, I don't say it in a mean way like that, I say it in a more pleasant way, but I say, on what basis do you think God's going to accept you? Why should He accept you? Of course, now they always say, Dad, not now, like you're always doing this. But I want them to know, and this is of of tremendous importance to me, tremendous importance. I want them to know Christianity is not about staying out of trouble, cleaning your room, avoiding lust, watching your mouth, being polite, going to church. Although, please hear me, I want them to do all of those things. I want them to do all those things. But that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about faith. It's a posture of faith, repentance and faith, that leads us to cling to Christ and His righteousness rather than celebrating and resting in our own. And I want my kids to know that. Because if they go down the road for one second, well, I've been good here, I've been good, I'm better than this, whatever. I want them to know it's not about that. Christianity is not about, it's not primarily about morals, it's primarily about substitution. The one who would die for all, the one who would give his life so that we could be forgiven. At the heart of the Christian faith is a great exchange. And here's what it is. This is our second and final point this morning. On the cross, Christ exchanged his righteousness for our sin, so that by faith we might exchange our sin for His righteousness. This is the beauty of the Christian life. His righteousness covers us. When we believe 
God sees us as perfect because of Christ's perfection, which is ours, again, only by faith. So what that means is if you believed in Jesus, not just some facts about Him, not if you can go to certain Bible verses and say certain things about Him, but if you've, again, you believed Him at the whole level of yourself, if you've committed yourself to Him, you're trusting in Him alone, then what that means is you're totally forgiven. And your forgiveness this morning is final. God is not keeping score. He's not making a list and checking it twice. That's Santa. That's not God. That's not how God works. So what that means is on your very worst days, when you lose it with your kids, you have no interest in reading the Bible, when you give in again to that one particular sin that keeps hounding you, when you think those horrible thoughts about someone you know you should, be, uh, you should love, when you do all of those things, you're still forgiven. You stand forgiven by God. And when you have those days when you think you've just taken the world by storm, you've spent time in prayer, you've read an extra chapter of your Bible than you normally read, you've been calm when you were driving, you never once said, it's a green light, people. Why aren't we moving? Now, I've never said that myself, but I've heard people say that. You've never done that. You haven't done that on that day. And on those days, those days you feel, I've just absolutely, I've had the best day ever, morally speaking. And you feel best about yourself. You still have failed in a thousand ways to be perfect. And if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. If you want to know, this is today's Martin Luther's birthday. I've got to make one Martin Luther reference. If you want to know if you truly believe in the way that we've talked about, Martin Luther would say the best way to determine if a person really believes is what they actually think about being a child of God is like. So if you believe that being a child of God is sort of this endless slog to make sure you're good enough, to make sure that God's happy with you, to make sure that you've done enough to earn God's love, you don't really believe. But when you think about what it means to be a child of God, if you, if you really recognize that all your goodness is from Him and all your righteousness is from Him, and because of that, on your best days and on your worst days, you're still loved and cherished as a child of God, then you may actually believe, Luther would say. You may actually believe. Caiaphas is making a political statement, but John wants to, to prepare us. He wants to prepare us for everything that will follow in this gospel as we start to turn our face and look to the cross. This is the turning point in John's gospel. Everything that happens from this point on will actually prepare us for the cross, for the passion of Christ. The cross is the center of the Christian faith. Without the cross, there is no gospel. There is no Christianity. Those who want to remove the cross from Christian preaching, from Christian worship, they're actually participating in another type of exchange. They're exchanging the Christian faith for a powerless religion. But the beauty of the cross is that one died for all. Jesus died so that we could be right with God. So that the God of the universe could be, as we're going to just sing about in just a moment, our true Father. And we could be His true sons and daughters. So that the high King of heaven the one who is exalted above all, the one who is perfect and holy, the one in whom there is no darkness, 
so that the high king of heaven, who has won the victory for us, could bring us to be with him forever. Caiaphas thinks he's being clever. He thinks he's, he's offering a political statement. But what God in his infinite wisdom is doing, he's preparing us and John's readers for the beauty and the glory and the sufficiency of the cross. All of which will continue. It will become more magnificent and more beautiful as we continue to work our way through John's gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that you loved us enough to send your son to die for us. And Father, we ask this morning that you would give us the grace to believe. We pray for those who are here this morning, maybe who, who have not put their faith in Jesus. Maybe for them the Christian life is about going to church, or it's about trusting in their baptism, or maybe it's about resting in something good they've done, but they've never really put their faith in Jesus. Father, will, will you cause it to be so? by the power of your Spirit, that today is the day of salvation for some. And here this morning who are beaten down with the cares of this world, will you encourage them that those who are in Christ, if they are in Christ, they are forgiven. They are forgiven. Help us to believe it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.